welcome to Beyond the Block with Brother Jones and Brother Knox, centering the marginalized in Mormonism. Brother Derek, how are you, my friend? I'm great. I came up with a really cool new idea this week, and it is okay. good. <laughs> does it have just... anything to do with Old English? It does. Ah, You're okay. so perceptive. So, Derek, what's the deal? I, my problem is no one's, learning, no one's wanting to learn Old English with me, so I came up with a plot. Okay. To get a whole bunch of people wanting to learn Old English. What I realized is all I need is a multi-level marketing scheme. I just have to find two people that want to learn Old English and convince them to find two people themselves. So then I've got, then they find four people. And then I take those four people and then I get all these people in my downline. And then all these people want to learn Old English. Isn't that amazing? (laughs) Well, I will admit I've heard of worst MLMs, so uh, I guess you're not too, <laughs> I guess it could work. It could work. Yeah, I just need to <laughs> just find two and then get them to find two and then I'll be famous. Yeah, she'll be famous. You can be like the, uh, gosh, I don't I don't know any MLM personalities. I, I, I used to know that dude who uh, did Herbalife, but he looked like Jim Jones, and that's so I always called him the Jim Jones guy. But like you, you could be like him, oh. like the celebrity status of these MLM entrepreneurs, and but with old English. Uh, ugh, gosh. Oh, I wonder. Ah. What I could. I wonder what I could call it. Maybe I could call it Lulu La Linguistics. <laughs> <laughs> Copyright that now, my guy. Yes, that Lulu La Linguistics. Lulu Linguistics. Okay, that sounds good. I can't even say it, but I, I I hope you find somebody like people that are willing to do that with you. Like when yeah. you first said it, I'm just gonna admit, man. Like I did not see the appeal. I, I still don't even. I, you've explained it to me twice, but I still don't even know why you are learning old English. But as long as you're happy, my guy, I'm oh, happy. Oh yeah, I'm for happy. You. It prevents me from wasting my brain thinking about the homophobes of the world. All right. So, so, sounds like Old English is doing a good work for you. It is, yeah. Very good. Uh, speaking of uh, education doing good work, we got to... I mean, I assume that you've seen this in the uh, in the news there, but apparently, the, I, I saw this on the news, on the church newsroom, but they said that the... Uh, they, they released this new list of ecclesiastical leader questions mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. new hires in the church education system. You, you got a chance to look over this, I assume? Right, I did, and I'm really concerned. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a mess, and this impacts um, not just the BYUs, but also institute and seminary uh, teachers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're trying to artificially change the course of the upcoming generation, right? Because if you can police the attitudes of CES instructors and uh, seminary teachers and uh, the BYU faculty, you've got um, control over the next generation. Well, you said a lot there, Derek. Can we like talk specifically about what these updates to uh, the questions that I ask uh, potential CES hires, like what is what has right. changed? What does that look like? What is the language in here that we are uh, mm-hmm. specifically concerned about? Because I, yeah, I, so I noticed a couple of things originally, um, and I think all along you've had to have a to you've had to be temple worthy. I'm I'm assuming for all of these positions, but now there's an even stricter requirement, an even more um, targeted requirement here, and I'm concerned about this one question. It says, uh, well, let's look at the uh, look at the context. And this is mm-hmm. the um, uh, the context that's provided. It says it is critical that each employee represent the mission, values and goals of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. These mm-hmm. updates reflect the expectations we have for each employee to continue to engage fully in the spiritual mission that is central to each CES institution. Okay, so they're wanting to police the compliance of employees with what they perceive to be the missions, values, and goals of of the CES system. And this new question is, does this member have a testimony of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and of its doctrine, including its teachings on marriage, family, and gender? Mm-hmm. Like, why would they need to specify mm-hmm. that unless they're why? really wanting to? What was uh, the reason? 
Yeah, they clearly... Uh, yeah, they clearly are afraid of losing control and dominion over the upcoming generation. They want to um, make sure that you raise generations of homophobes and uh, transphobes. And uh, I don't even know what their emphasis is on gender. Are they looking at gender roles and anti-feminist stuff as well? It could be that. And perhaps our trans community as well. Yes. Um, But yeah, marriage, family, and gender, they can't even have the courage to say the words, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They use this euphemism of, oh, marriage and family. What they really mean is homophobia and transphobia and perhaps misogyny, right? Mm -hmm. That's what Mm -hmm. they mean, but they're not going to say, do you have a testimony of all of these policies and procedures and doctrines that are and that uh, limit uh, the life of queer people, trans people, and women, and, and so forth. No, it's mm-hmm. do you have a testimony of our doctrine, including its teachings on marriage, family, and gender? And here's my other question: Is what teachings? This is probably See, a question. Name a those lawyer, things. Name a, those things. A lawyer will ask, like, what teachings on marriage? Mm-hmm. Well, about polygamy? About uh, singlehood? About um, what about intersex individuals, people with an inter, uh, physical intersex condition? Oh, we don't even have teachings on that, right? Mm-hmm. That is how mm-hmm. incomplete and incompetent our whole system is. They just know they don't want the homos, and they don't, they don't, they know they don't want trans people. But what else do they know, right? They don't even have a consistent teaching on a marriage. Um, like what happens to single people in the afterlife. We don't have clear, solid teachings on these things. And so the mm-hmm. only thing mm-hmm. it could be is the anti-LGBT uh, stuff and perhaps right. anti-women stuff. Right, like, right. Right. And uh, then the next question is, does this member support current church policies and practices and sustain the leaders of the church? Now, I have a real problem with that because they're trying to stop the conversation and I'm reminded of this uh, situation. I think it was in 1967 that Sweden decided to change the direction of uh, traffic. They used to drive on the left side of the road, like like the United Kingdom. And then in 1967, they switched it after a process of deliberation and uh, and research. They switched to the right side of the road, like we do. And obviously, if you're going to make this change, you have to make you. Everyone has to change on the same day, at the same, literally at the same moment. There was one morning where, early in the morning on a on a Sunday, they they switched it. They literally switched all the the signs, and everyone then drove on the other side of the street. And but here's my question. Would it be wrong to advocate for change before 1967 on this issue? Like, what if you had Swedes that tried to make the argument, which eventually prevailed, saying, hey, you know what, we should change. Is that unfaithful to Sweden? Is that like, you're, you're, a, you're betraying us? And you're, no, like, to just even stop the conversation about policy. Like, does this member support current church policies and practices? Like, you are stopping the conversation. There is a... There's, there's a different kind of disloyalty. Like if I'm not – the analogy is between someone who says, I'm just going to start driving on the other side of the road because it's better on my own. Well, see, that mm-hmm. you can't do, right? That would lead to a whole bunch of mess. But to, to say, hey, let me advocate for change. Let me advocate for something that I think is better, and then let's all do it together. Even to just say that is now defined by people with power in the church as unfaithful to the church, and I think that is an unfair abuse of power because they have the power to hire and fire people who have uh, families to feed and, and lives to live. And uh, yeah, this is this is a mess. Mm-hmm. What are your reactions to this? Yeah, bro. Um, it looks desperate. It, it looks it looks weak. It looks like you said, controlling it. It doesn't look like something that a healthy institution would do to like require people's beliefs on the family and marriage and gender to sustain queer phobia in order to work in an educational institution for it doesn't it like for an institution trying to 
maintain academic integrity, it doesn't make sense. For an institution claiming to follow a Christ who never said a negative word about queer people, it doesn't make sense. For an institution that teaches that power and influence are maintained by persuasion and long-suffering and gentleness, meekness, and uh, love unfeigned, this this looks weak right. and it looks pathetic. Like It doesn't look like something a legitimate organization would need to do if we truly were the church mm-hmm. of Christ. If we truly were... Like if our institutions truly were, you know, born out of this desire, as like it says up here, let me let me find this quote to represent the goals and values and the mission of the Church of Jesus Christ, the Latter-day Saints. In order for any credentialed or professional educator to work at BYU, they would have to accept the church's teachings on gender and marriage and family. That's what it that's what it seems to be with these new questions like it seems like there are several qualified educators with integrity who will not so much as apply to work at a CES institution. And further, this is doing more, as you uh, you know, as you already said, to create a hostile learning environment for queer people, and just a hostile environment for queer people in general. Since the people uh, educating our seminaries, our institutes, and our colleges mm-hmm. all sustain queer phobia. And besides the queer phobia is the integrity of an institution that requires faculty sus- to sustain homophobic policies. Like all around, it's just a bad look that appears to have no real benefit to anyone. Like it doesn't appear to benefit anyone. CES institutions will lose credibility and opportunities to learn and grow. Queer students are going to lose safety. Queer people are going to lose mm-hmm. safety. And another thing, like on the church, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look this up real quick because I know there's a website on this it's probably linked here like the church on the church's website itself in describing the purpose of the church educational system the objective of the whole thing this is what it says on the uh, church website under Mm -hmm. uh, church educational system the purpose of the church educate the objective of the whole thing is to provide educational opportunities to help church members throughout the world become true disciples of Christ with his gospel embedded deep in their hearts. How does this do that? Like this is only a move in that direction if you believe that queer phobia is part of the gospel. And something that we like regularly say on this podcast is queerphobia is not a part of the gospel. Like how distorted does your idea of what Christ taught need to be in order for you to feel like dehumanizing queer people is what Christ taught and is what he requires right. when he never said a word on it. With when any and or when any genuine inquiry of mm-hmm. scripture, of science, of our own history with ideas around gender identity and sexual orientation would challenge our policies on the same. Like none mm-hmm. of this makes sense and further it just doesn't feel or look like something that people with real power or people with real knowledge or people with a real sense of what Christ taught would need to do. Just none of this, this seems just transparently Mm, mm -hmm. evil. And like, I don't, I don't want to use that word lightly, but just there, I don't see Christ in this at all. So like I have, a lot of like negative feelings. I just, I have a lot of questions. I, I, I feel like I know what BYU or sorry, what the church educational system is trying to do, but it's going to backfire spectacularly. It's, it's just going to backfire. Going to do it's, norm, gonna be- it's just going to do more damage that we're going to have to work even harder to undo. And that's like what frustrates me about this the most is they're creating right. more work for us to do when all is said and done. And a bigger, another problem other than that it's wrong from, from the queer uh, justice perspective is that it's wrong even from their own goals because this this approach is not going to accomplish what they want it to accomplish. If they want to purify the the CES institutions of all pro-gay people, this mm-hmm. isn't going to work because right. when you do right. something like this, all it does is it makes the thing go underground. It makes people hide it better. It makes people... Um, be more strategic about it. This this is not going to, and and once it goes underground, then you don't know who's pro gay or not, right? Because people can't honestly say they can't honestly do what they're doing. So all these people are going to still in, influence high school and college age kids, and you just the leaders aren't even going to know who's pro gay and who's not. And there's going to be pro gay people making hiring decisions at all these places. They've got 
like there's there's pro gay people at BYU. There's people that want change, and now they aren't going to be able to find the problem because they've artificially mm-hmm. allowed people. They've artificially not let people share their thoughts like if if the reverse were true if i were in charge and i had hiring and firing would i come up with a policy that says all homophobes will automatically lose their job no because then i will not know who the homophobes are because they'll hide it i would say nope you're not gonna lose your job you you can have free speech but we're gonna we're gonna have a conversation like i want to know who the homophobes are I shouldn't. I shouldn't call them homophobes. I want to know who's not yet affirming. Why not? Because Why not? shoot, <laughs> that's what they are. Definitionally, right, but, functionally, that yeah, is what I know. they are. But what I mean is, I want to. I want to know who's not yet affirming, so that they can be reclaimed. Because I honestly think that the more they have the conversation, the more hope we have of reclaiming people. I wouldn't want to just automatically fire people for being homophobes. I want to say, look. We're going to put boundaries in place so that you can't hurt people, but you can keep mm-hmm. your job. And we're going to have a conversation. We're going to keep, keep having a conversation because I believe in the dignity of the individual spirit of those homophobes that they can be reclaimed for good. And because most people, I think the more they have the conversation, the more likely it is it's going to end up on our side. I think that's mm-hmm. why that there's an asymmetry here. That's why they want to close down the conversation because they know mm-hmm. that they're not going to prevail, so they have to use mm-hmm. artificial force to prevail. Right. right. They're they're creating a tighter and tighter box. Like that and it, is what that's exactly what this felt like. It's gonna it's gonna just drive it underground. It's it's um it it's not gonna work. It, it's it's just not gonna work. Like there's they've already lost the battle. There's already a lot of people with I know seminary and institute teachers. I know professors at BYU who are one hundred percent on my side and believe all the right things. They're not going away. This is this is a it's just gonna make things more of a mess. But mm-hmm. they're not. It's it's out of the box. It's out of the box now, right? We've got mm-hmm. you. You can't put it, put us back in the closet. It's it's going to continue going down this path, and they, it doesn't even it's not even going to meet their own goal of of making it. It just it makes no sense to me. It's uh, yeah. I I mean yeah. it's it doesn't make any sense, and it's opposite of what even works from their own strategy. Like every strategy. one of these uh, homophobic things contains within it the seeds of its own destruction like we will come back to this later when we talk about genesis but we should yeah. i don't i'm probably now just talking too much i don't know if i'm not fine new it's fine and we're going to come back to some of these themes actually when we discuss uh joseph and i i would want to come back and discuss this uh, theme this idea of reclamation when we when we talk about judah um but we can take we can save that for a little bit later uh, mm-hmm. We'll just start from the beginning of this week's Come Follow Me. But before we do that, I want to remind you guys that we are a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network, a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Find out more at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. So we are in Genesis chapters mm-hmm. 42 through 50 this week. Uh, nice, uh, nice chunk of, of Genesis that we are, well, we're finishing Genesis basically. And, uh, this is going to be basically the reunion of Joseph with his brothers and the subsequent, you know, everything that happens after that, the blessing and, uh, in some cases, cursing of the children of Israel among, uh, among other things. So we we have a lot going on in these uh, chapters, but the primary thing is the climax of the story of Joseph and uh, his brothers and their uh, you know their reunion. So I wanted to say other... some things, yeah, uh, just kind of tying things up from last week and framing the whole thing. I see this whole saga as very integrated, and uh, details from one section tie in with others uh and for me one of the things i noticed is uh part of the whole arc is well what happened here is that joseph's brothers didn't like his pride and arrogance they were jealous they didn't like his quote unnatural abilities it's the the dreaming and it's the dreaming it's his unnaturalness that 
there's this big irony. It's the dreaming. It's the unnaturalness. It's the difference. It's the, oh, you're different that made them, that made the brothers reject Joseph. But it's those very qualities that positioned Joseph to be able to, uh, to save his brothers, to, uh, to, to understand, to interpret the dream, to, uh, to go from being in prison to being second command in Egypt. It's the very thing that they hated about Joseph that God used to position him to uh, to be a path for the survival. And had had they not sold Joseph into Egypt, there would have been no one to save uh, Joseph's family, uh, the family of Jacob. In the end, right? There would have been no solution. So we'll see how it all ties in together. And um, and and part of this tying together goes back to one of the fundamental functions of religion and that is meaning making Mm -hmm. so much of religion is about meaning making uh through symbol or through narrative or through uh, ritual and uh in many cases for oppressed folks for persecuted folks meaning making can be essential for survival making meaning out of the suffering and we can talk about later about um how to make meaning responsibly because you can obviously um distort that in in ways but yeah, let's That's get actually, into the text. Well, most of what I'd like to say is going to be in uh, 44. So if you have anything in 42 or 43, let's begin there. So here we've got Joseph, who's not known to to the brothers, but Joseph mm-hmm. recognizes the brothers, but they don't recognize him. He, in order to ascertain whether they have matured from their youth, ends up um, testing them and accusing them of being spies and seeing what's going to happen. And uh, um, and uh, this, is, this is the brother's reaction. Mm-hmm. And this is verse uh, 21 of chapter 42. And they said each to his brother, Alas, we are guilty for our brother whose mortal distress we saw when he pleaded with us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has overtaken us. Then Reuben spoke out to them in these words. Didn't I say to you, commit no offense through the boy? And you would not listen. And now look, his blood is requited. And uh, and I just find this a very interesting dramatic irony. Um because what what Joseph asked them to do was go back and get their youngest brother, Benjamin, who didn't come the first time and bring them back mm-hmm. to prove that they're not spies and to prove that they're saying the truth. And now they're like, oh, no, this has caught up with us. And, uh, and I just find it so interesting that this detail that they said, we are guilty for our brother – and we get a detail that we didn't get when it was first narrated. I'm reading from Alter's translation, and Alter has a footnote that says okay. that we didn't get we didn't get this detail in the original report that that Joseph pled to them from the pit. And I just find that so moving. Like it would have been heartbreaking to read it the first time around, right? right. To, what words did he say? Like he could clearly plead and cry out to his brothers he was begging them not to leave him in the pit not to leave him in the closet right Mm -hmm. and they were heartlessly ignoring and not listening and i feel this is where queer people are in the church today we are pleading and begging for justice not to do this great unjust unfair evil thing we don't deserve the awful things that happen to us we are begging not them not to take place and they don't listen to us Mm. isn't that like this detail is just going to stick with me for the rest of my life that joseph pleaded with them and 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 they didn't do anything right i'm pleading with people in the church today uh in my own ward in my own community for justice and uh, who's to say whether they will listen or not? I don't. Uh, I don't know. But we will see what happens. That's all I had to say about verse forty-two, and we will get sort of the ironic parallel of all this later, when 
when they uh, when they find out, um, uh, and, and actually when the brothers plead with Joseph, and Joseph listens to them when they need, and Joseph did not repay to them what they did to him. Yeah, there's uh, definitely a tremendous amount of maturity displayed by Joseph in his forgiveness of his brothers, both in his refusal to take vengeance on them and in his initiation of reconciliation with them. It also continues a pattern seen in Joseph throughout his whole ordeal in Egypt. Though Joseph was consistently thrown in bad situations, he made the best of them. And consistent with his character throughout his experience in Egypt, he does that yet again, forgiving his brothers and giving them an opportunity to do right by him and to be a part of the family again. The um, Come Follow Me manual does make forgiveness a focus of this lesson, and I'm sure we'll be talking about it more come Sunday. So I'm going to leave that mostly alone for now. But I, I do want to bring reconciliation and conversation with Joseph's story because there seems to be a mistaken idea, for example, that uh, black America needs to forgive white America and move on, which too often looks like no real work on white America's part. We, we simply stop talking about race or stop making a big deal out of it and we just move on. But Joseph's story is one of the most commonly weaponized stories against the abused and the oppressed, especially in familial settings. But people forget that Joseph ran his brothers through a series of tests and raised the stakes each time before revealing himself to his brothers and reconciling with them. His, his brothers repented. Like that was one of the biggest parts of of this whole story. That's one of the biggest parts of the climax of this story. They were changed individuals, as we're going to see when we get to uh, chapter 44. But that's why Joseph could both forgive and reconcile with them, because not only was Joseph not vengeful and uh, also in a position of power, but his brothers were also in a different position. They were in a position of penitence. They were different individuals. We, we can't skip over that when we talk about Joseph forgiving his brothers, lest we... Um, improperly speak of the power and role of forgiveness and turn it into something unhealthy that doesn't fulfill either the purpose of forgiveness and reconciliation. Only when we acknowledge this whole story, the uh, the wrongs done, the repentance that needs to take place and eventually took place, only when we recognize the whole story can we then talk about Joseph's forgiveness and the blessings of that forgiveness on both himself and the rest of the family. So, right. um, and I also want to name, of course, that that oh, so many years had passed. Isn't it something like twenty years? And the yeah, brothers thought years. through. Like the brothers changed. They matured. They wisened up. They they realized their mistake, and there was true repentance. I think had that not been the case, there would not have been reconciliation. And so, forgiveness doesn't mean the restoration of trust. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness doesn't mean that boundaries go away. You can still um, forgive and and then not re uh, not regain trust, not re regain um, uh, the, the the relationship as it was. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I just keep thinking like this very thing that the CES people uh, leaders have implemented is an example of. Uh, throwing us into the pit when we're pleading like like we didn't do anything to you why are you throwing us into the pit all we did mm -hmm. is just be different we have our coat of many colors we have different unnatural characteristics we can dream dreams and because of this we're a little bit different you throw us in the pit that makes no sense and we're pleading with you right right crying out and they don't listen to us. So it's not like they, they're doing this in a vacuum. They know the tremendous pain of queer people. They know the tremendous difficulty of queer people in the church. And they want to win a war that they're not able to win with us as collateral damage. I don't even know. We might even be the primary targets. Like They um, see us as disposable and expendable all for the sake of preserving a an image of prophetic leadership right like oh we can't be wrong yeah. we can't make mistakes and we're gonna uh, make it look like we can't make mistakes they're artificially preserving the reputation of leaders at the expense of the lives of my people 
And uh, I'd like to say that that's unforgivable. Um, but we'll see this story. Well, I wonder if it can be forgiven. We'll see what happens. We shall. Um, while we're still on the subject, uh, you know, what members of the church are doing um, to, you know, our queer siblings, I do want to lift up something else that uh, is happening in 44, where you see uh, this, see evidence of the maturing of Joseph's brothers. Uh, a lot of time has passed, and they've clearly had time to think about what they had done, and also the effect of losing Joseph on their father, among other things. But uh, something that happens in section 44, you look at the immediate response mm -hmm. of Benjamin's brothers after this whole uh, incident. And this is, uh, this is chapter 44. I have a lot of windows open. Let me get this organized a little bit. So this is, uh, this is chapter 44, the immediate response of uh, Benjamin's brothers after Joseph detains Benjamin. It indicates that they were no longer the, um, the heartless, the cruel men that they had once been. When Benjamin was exposed as the thief, first of all, we see um, they rend their clothes, which is a you know, a sign of mourning, a, 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 an expression of intense grief. Mm -hmm. And not only did they grieve, but they also refused to abandon Benjamin to his plight. They were not going to let this youngest brother be alone in this whole mm -hmm. situation. This, you know, right. the steward would have been, they learned exactly. They did not do to Benjamin what they did to Joseph, you know, two decades prior. Um, the steward that uh, detains Joseph, or sorry, detains Benjamin, would have been content to return with Benjamin, but each of the brothers, they load their donkeys and they return to the city. That's what it says in, uh, in verse 13, which signals to their youngest sibling that they were in the mess together. They were all in this together. So mm -hmm. we see this kind of expression of proper allyship uh, in this response to Benjamin. And even when Joseph repeated his intentions to imprison only Benjamin, look at verse 16. Look at what happens in verse 16. I just think this is really beautiful. Uh, 44, 16. I'm, re I'm reading from the NSRV translation. It says, Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Here we are then, my Lord's slaves, both we and also the one whose possession the cup has been found. So look at what Judah does as the leader of his brothers. He offers, they offer themselves as willing slaves in solidarity with Benjamin. And then things get turned up in the next several verses. First of all, Joseph keeps up the facade, insisting that only Benjamin must stay as his slave. But then Judah again is moved to the forefront. And look at what Judah does. Like this mm -hmm. is the second time he has stepped up to lead his brothers by promising, you know, promising uh, Jacob to bring Benjamin back. Um, but at this point, he led them by giving this impassioned and poetic, um, you know, plea for Joseph to show mercy and, you know, for, for Benjamin's sake and for the sake of Jacob. So, the, pit, the, the, the peak, the climax of Judah's appeal here, the proof that he had truly experienced a change of heart, and this is what, what like gets me about this whole story, was the offer that he made to, to remain here as, the, as Joseph's slave in place of Benjamin. That is, uh, let me find this verse. That is verse 33. Look what he says. Therefore, please let your servant remain as a slave to my Lord in place of the boy and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? How can, I'm going to read that again. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see mm. the suffering that would come upon my father. Don't you love that language? Like, yeah. how would it be if the members of the church viewed this whole situation with our queer siblings, with our marginalized siblings, the same way that Judah viewed his relationship with Benjamin and with Jacob. What if we said to ourselves, how can we go back to our father in heaven if mm -hmm. our queer Amen. siblings is Amen. not with us? I fear to see the suffering that would come upon our father. 
Like, this is how we should be looking at this whole relationship. This is like, it's obviously familial, but we cannot go back without each other. Like, this is something we've spoken on, spoken on many times on this show. We cannot be made perfect without each other. Right. Without them cannot be made perfect. Neither can they be made perfect without us. And also remember the parable Mm -hmm. of, uh, parable of the good shepherd like then leave the 99 to find the one like the flock Mm -hmm. is not complete without all of the sheep and the flock is not even safe while the shepherd is well i mean we talked about that analogy already Mm -hmm. but point is judah knew that he would have failed in his mission he would have failed if he went back without his younger brother and look at what he was willing to do to make sure that happened he was willing to go in the stead of his brother to make sure that he didn't bring any disappointment or suffering to the rest of the family. That is the kind of allyship that is required, I feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We need to be willing to put ourselves Mm -hmm. on the line for our queer siblings, for all of our marginalized siblings, really. That is and you know, Judah, as somebody who was the kind of ringleader, you know, of Joseph's initial being sold into the Egypt, he got two opportunities in this particular moment mm-hmm. to be the brother that he wasn't for Joseph. This is where this is how we know that he is really transformed and how he is really repented. He not only offers right. the whole all of his brothers to serve in solidarity with Benjamin, but he offers himself in his place. That I think is a beautiful type of allyship and something that we should aspire to when it comes to our marginalized siblings. Are we willing to work in solidarity with them? Are we willing to suffer in solidarity with them? Are we willing to take their place? Mm-hmm. Like if we wouldn't mm-hmm. want, mm-hmm. if we would not want the treatment of queer people, you know, for ourselves, you know, then, you know, why would we let them do it? I feel like yeah. this would be a powerful thing for us to do is like if our, and you know, this may be a little bit much. I don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, but like if our queer siblings, for example, aren't able to go into the temple, if they are not able to experience the blessings of marriage, then, you know, as an act of solidarity, I heard it suggested, why would we go into the temple then? Why, what if the rest of us were forced to not go into the temple? Like, what could we do in solidarity with our queer siblings in the church yeah. or our queer siblings in general to demonstrate that we are not okay with this mm-hmm. treatment that they are receiving? Exactly. I think that the um, the injustice that has befallen queer people in the church would be turned around within a year if all of the good straight people in the church say to the leaders of the church, whatever you do to queer people, you do to us. And take the same punishment, take the same cost, take the same deprivation, take the same fasting, take the same uh, relinquishment of blessings, and you're not going to be treated any worse than you, than we're treated, right? If, um, yeah, like if um, if all of the the young straight folks in the church who are who are pro LGBT would say, you know what, my queer siblings can't be sealed, I'm not going to be sealed either, so. Grandma, you're going to have to de- deal with that, right? Because if, mm-hmm. if they don't need it, then neither do we. But if we need it, then so do they. Like, there would be, there would be an uproar here, a cry that, that's unthinkable, right? Because uh-huh. once, once uh, straight people, straight families bear the cost, then it'll get some attention. Like, all the suffering in the world that happens to, to queer people doesn't move the needle. But if like solid straight families um, started bearing the same cost, oh boy, those parents and grandparents would be mad that they're not going to see their grand grandbabies sealed, right? Then you yeah. then there would that right? It would be it would be um anyway, uh, and I find it of course I don't know if you mentioned this, but it's a, a very uh, poetic and ironic reversal because Judah was the one if you re- remember who said, hey, you know what, let's just, let's just sell uh, Joseph because they were all on board with getting rid of him and Judah's like, well, mm-hmm. let's, let's get a benefit. We can get rid of him and make a profit at the same time and let's sell him. And mm-hmm. it's the selling that positioned Joseph, of course. Now the brothers didn't knew this. What they meant for evil ended up turning out for good. Mm-hmm. But... Uh, it was the selling that ironically positioned Joseph to be able to heal his own family that rejected him and betrayed him. 
And I think the same thing is true. I making meaning now, not all queer people are going to make this meaning, but I think that all of the the awful treatment that my people are receiving in the church today is going to position us to help the church tomorrow. There's going to time. There's going to be a time when the church calls upon its queer people to say, "Help us with faith crisis. Help us with navigating change. Help us with X, Y, Z." They're going to come and ask us for grain in Egypt because they don't have any. And what they did to us positioned us with the resiliency, the loyalty, the knowledge of scripture, everything that we had to do because of what we were put in by them will now be a blessing to them. And so I just want to name that. Definitely. And I think that day is coming sooner than we think. Uh, it is. People have already people already have had to depend on me. Like straight people have already had to depend on me. People who've who've harmed me have already come back to me for advice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's amazing already. We're already seeing it. Like looking to the people on the margins because that's where God's on the move. That's where mm-hmm. the real work gets done. Like well. anyway, there's so much to talk about. Like I'm talking too much. Let's let's go on so I can talk more. <laughs> Are we <laughs> ready to good, talk about 45? Yeah, I'm about to say, I think I finished uh, my thoughts on 44. So let's go ahead and move uh, to 45. Okay. The I want to I want to read. Coming out. I, I know we're running out of time, but I just actually want to read Alter's translation of chapter 45 verses 1 through um, probably 13. Because... It is so, this is the coming out story. This is where Joseph reveals his identity. He makes himself vulnerable to his brothers, even though he has power. He has power to kill them, I, I think, right? He has oh, absolutely. He has the power to deprive them, uh, imprison them, to kill them, to deprive them of food. He, he, he can basically do anything. He has them where he wants, and he does not do to them what they did to him. Anyway, and Joseph could no longer hold himself in check before all who stood attendance upon him and he cried clear out everyone around me and no man stood with him when joseph made himself known to his brothers now earlier they had spoken through a translator right Mm -hmm. and now all these translators and that's actually how joseph could tell what they were thinking when they said oh no this is happening to us because of what we did to, to joseph uh, and he cried out to uh to us and begged us to not put him in the pit and we didn't listen he heard all that in Hebrew, and uh, they didn't know that Joseph could understand them because they were talking through an interpreter. But now it's designed so that there's no interpreter. Clear out everyone around me. And no man stood with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, and the Egyptians heard, and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? Now, I just want to pause there, and that must have been shocking to hear Joseph. They didn't know it was Joseph. Speak Hebrew to them and say, I am Joseph. Ani Yosef. Ha'od avi chai. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed before him. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me, pray. And they came close, and he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be pained, and do not be incensed with yourselves that you sold me down here. Because for sustenance God has sent me before you. Two years now there has been famine in the heart of the land. And there are yet five years without plowing and harvest. And God has sent me before you to make you a a remnant on earth and to preserve life for you to be a great surviving group. And so it is not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me father to Pharaoh and lord to all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord to all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not delay. 
and you shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and shall be close to me, you and your sons, and the sons of your sons, and your flocks, and your cattle, and all that is yours, and I will sustain you there. For yet five years of famine remain, lest you lose all, you and your household, and all that is yours. And look, your own eyes can see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin, that it is my very mouth that speaks to you, and you must tell my father all my glory in Egypt, and all that you have seen, and hurry and bring down my father here. Close quote. Isn't that amazing? That's like the best coming out speech. And that's better than my coming out speech. <laughs> like how he, they they probably spent, went through like all of the, the cycles of grief and joy and happiness, like all of the things, right? First mm-hmm. of all, they were shocked that, that, that Joseph was still alive. They were shocked that this person could, could speak Hebrew. They were shocked that who it was. They were shocked that, oh no, he's alive. Is he going to kill us now? And then they were shocked that he was gracious to them. Like there was just so much shock here mm-hmm. uh, that it doesn't even record what the brother's words were. And in fact, they're probably not even that important. What's important is what Joseph's testimony was here. I find it very interesting that it wasn't the brothers who told him what meaning to make out of this. Joseph himself owned the story, and he's the one who identified it as mm. an act of God's intervention. Mm-hmm. And I think that is key to uh, the injured party is the one that gets to make the meaning, and no one can tell them what it was supposed to mean. Uh, and so that that I find so beautiful. And of course, part of why I, I feel this great emotion when I read Joseph's words is like, I'm going to be saying these words to all these queer queer-hating people in the church. I'm going to say, they're going to look at me one day, and I'm going to say, I'm Joseph, whom you sold to Egypt. And they're going to realize what they did. I, I honestly think that, that the leaders of the church are good people. They just don't realize what they did, and they don't realize what they're doing now. And one day they're going to realize, and they're going to be horrified, and they are going to end up asking me for help. Mm-hmm. They already do. Uh, already do. Anyway, what do you think? <laughs> um, goodness. Amen, my guy. <laughs> you've said it all, and you've said it extremely well. Um, oh, wow. So I just want I can to... always say more. That's the, that's the thing you can always count on. You can count <laughs> on me for bad jokes, and you can always count on me for saying more. I, sure and I just think that's so interesting that they could finally hear Joseph's words in Hebrew again with no translator, mm-hmm. no um, nothing in between them, and then they'll realize. I mean, they realized this, yeah. and uh, and Joseph wasn't mad. And I think the reason why Joseph wasn't mad, he was he was mad right away. He was mad in the prison, but he the, what made him not mad was when he got to a place where you know what now I'm I'm second in command over Egypt. And I see that this all happened so that I could be positioned to feed people. Mm -hmm. And that's what made him not angry anymore. He's like, yeah, you did this to me. But I realize if you hadn't done this to me, I wouldn't be in this position. And now I'm positioned to save many people and many generations. And he uses that to bless his brethren. And it's one of the first things that he says as well. Like he says, God sent me before you to preserve your Mm -hmm. life. Mm-hmm. Like that's one of the first things he says. Yeah. Um, and as you said, the terrible string of events all led Joseph to this position of privilege just mm-hmm. in time, you know, to save mm-hmm. the lives of, you know, thousands, tens of thousands. And uh, right. he had, he had, he had noticed the connection and we see that in what, what is it? Verses seven and eight that you read. It was not you who sent me here, but God. Um, yeah. And we see this very much uh, on the cross, too, where oh, yeah. the ironically, the crucifixion of Jesus is what saved those who crucified them. The sin of crucifying Jesus was paid for by the crucifixion. Isn't that ironic? Like, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Um, we queer people have to say that all the time. Oh, boy, am I going to have to say that uh, a lot in the near future? Mm-hmm. But it's it's very much cross shaped, and Jesus uh, 
uh, I we don't want to like rip this out of its Jewish context and then just overlay. Oh, it's all just about Jesus. So I'm not doing that. I, we uh, we definitely should respect our Jewish siblings who read this without any reference to Jesus. But I think there's a piece uh, uh, for for seeing some of this there and seeing how this rhymes and seeing how um, Judah eventually gets blessed with being the uh, one of the ancestors of the Messiah. And we see this. Let's go into those these patriarchal blessings in verse uh, in chapter forty nine. Let me say something about the blessing of Judah here. It is uh, in chapter forty nine, verses nineteen through through. Uh, no, chapter chapter forty nine, verses twenty two through twenty six. So let me get there. It says, "A fruitful son." And remember, we're reading this in the context of of Joseph as a symbolically queer. Now, I'm not saying that Joseph literally had a same gender relationship or literally was transgender, right? But I think there's a rhyming that happens when we look at how Joseph is framed in the text itself and later rabbinic work. How it how these these um, edgy descriptions of Joseph mark him out as queer in the fundamental sense of like different or or nonconforming or transgressive or annoying or whatever you want to say. So here it is, and then here we get the fruitfulness. Uh, yeah, uh, I I know I'm your favorite fruit, right? But we're gonna go. To, <laughs> uh, so here's how Alter translates it. Quote: A fruitful son is Joseph. A fruitful son by a spring, daughters strode by a rampart. They savaged him, shot arrows, and harassed him, the archers did. But taut was his bow, his arms ever moving, through the hands of the champion of Jacob, through the name of the shepherd and Israel's rock. From the God of your fathers, may he aid you. Shaddai, may he bless you. Blessings of the heavens above, blessings of the deep that lies below, blessings of breasts and womb. Your father's blessings surpassed the blessings of timeless heights, the bounty of hills everlasting. May they rest on the head of Joseph, on the brow of the one set apart from his brothers. Close quote. And this was pronounced on Joseph um, by Jacob, and I think this is just amazing, so amazing as to how it folds all of these things and uh, together. And I am of the tribe of Joseph. If you uh, if you take my sort of spiritual heritage, uh, Ephraim being one of the sons of Joseph, I'm part of that. I'm part. Of, mm-hmm. I'm grafted into that queer blessing, right? Uh, and I want to. Uh, uh, yeah, name this very interesting quote from uh, the Queer Bible Commentary. Here's what it says. After blessing Joseph's sons, Jacob now blesses his own. Uh, over only one does he invoke the androgynous divine Shaddai. Oh, by the way, Shaddai is uh, like the Hebrew word for breasts. Sorry, Shaddai. Okay. Um, that is, that son is Joseph, the mincing, flamboyant queen with painted eyes. Jacob calls on Shaddai to bless Joseph with the blessing of heaven above, of the deep that lies beneath, of the breast and of the womb. Frankel points out that Jacob's words over Joseph are brimming with female imagery. Perhaps they can be read as a sign that Jacob has fully accepted his very queer son. After Jacob's death, it is the turn of his brothers to be finally reconciled with him. His brothers ask his forgiveness for their crime against him. In part, they act out of fear. Jacob is dead, and Joseph is still ruler of the land. But Joseph freely forgives and reassures them, pointing out that while they intended him harm, the deity used their actions for good to preserve a numerous people. Surprisingly, while they can never be justified by it, evil, suffering, and oppression contain within themselves the perverse seeds of their reversal and undoing, the opportunity to work goodness, justice, and liberation. I'm going to say that last sentence again. 
Surprisingly, while they can never be justified by it, evil, suffering, and oppression contain within themselves the perverse seeds of their reversal and undoing, the opportunity to work goodness, justice, and liberation. Isn't that amazing? Beautiful, yeah. So what did you, did you have something from the, the Patriarchal Blessings chapter? Yeah, just something to uh, tie up on something that we talked about, yes, well, not yesterday, but uh, last week. Um, we did, we made an effort to cover the story of Dinah and Simeon and Levi, but in so doing, we also missed a brief insert of uh, something that happened with uh, Reuben and Bilha and something, and it's coming up again this week because we see uh, these quote unquote blessings that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi uh, obtain before Judah is eventually given the firstborn blessing as the uh, fourthborn son. All the first three brothers are passed over. We talked about why that was the case for Simeon and Levi last week because of you know how they responded to Dinah getting raped and in so responding, ended up murdering several men, uh, some of which were probably not guilty of anything. But uh, we did not talk about Bilhah and Reuben. And, uh, you know, it's an easy story to miss because it only takes, it's not even a real, it's not even a story. It's not covered as such. It's only one verse in the entire Hebrew Bible. But um, I wanted to make sure we covered that because it was also omitted from the Come Follow Me manual and our subsequent effort to recover those chapters did miss this story. So um, what happened in that neglected section was the story of uh, Reuben and Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid given to Jacob that she might have children. It's presented almost as an aside, only taking up a verse, but it is significant because what transpired here was the reason that Reuben, the firstborn son, was passed over for uh, the birthright blessings. In having sex with his father's concubine, he committed a sin almost as egregious as incest, at least according to the laws later given in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, but regardless, Reuben at the very least violated his father in some way as evidenced by Jacob's words to Reuben in chapter 49. What we don't have is Bilhah's voice, uh, just as we don't have Dinah's voice, even, even in rabbinic and pseudopigraphal uh, literature, some of which strongly suggest that she was, uh, that she was raped. Uh, perhaps it wouldn't be proper for me to try to fill those gaps now as we've uh, already taken a decent amount of time and to properly discuss these additional texts that attempt to fill in some of these gaps would require a lot more time. But because we didn't get to it last week, I wanted to make sure we at least named that Reuben, Simeon, and Levi all lost their birthright blessings because they related improperly to women, using them as excuses to either fill sexual desires or, uh, in the case of Simeon and Levi, uh, murderous ones. Yeah. Okay. That's it, really. Um, I don't think there's anything else that I wanted to say about these patriarchal blessings. Well, um, I'm just going to go into uh, chapter 50. This is the final chapter in Genesis. And we get uh, these words here. In uh, So basically, here's what happens. is, And I, I already touched on this a little bit with this quotation from the Queer Bible Commentary. So after... Jacob's death, the brothers thought, uh-oh, well, maybe Joseph was only taking care of us because of our father and he was still alive. Now that he's dead, well, maybe we're at risk. And then Joseph is like, no, honey, it's going to be fine. And here's how it goes. And Joseph wept, and this is verses 18 through 20. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him, and his brothers then came and flung themselves before him and said, here we are, your slaves. And Joseph said, Fear not, for am I instead of God? While you meant evil toward me, God meant it for good, so as to bring about at this very time keeping many people alive. And so fear not, I will sustain you and your little ones. And he comforted them, he comforted them and spoke to their hearts. I wanted to name just a couple of things about this. One is, the irony is, we have had very little divine intervention in chapters 37 through 40, this whole Joseph 
saga, right? We've. I mean, we I'm didn't not, hear God directly speaking to anybody until like verse forty, chapter forty six or forty seven, I think. Right, right. So I, I don't know if you want to count the famine as divine intervention. I don't know if that is count. I, I don't know if you want to count uh, Joseph's dream interpreting as as a divine gift. Um, we do. I mean, have definitely that. a divine gift, but like mm-hmm. this is where like the voice of God is conspicuously absent. Right. Like we don't have, you know, miracles. We don't have God tinkering with the variables. We don't have God moving around the chess paces. Even right. um, some of these things, it's mostly God inspiring individuals, right? Like mm-hmm. speaking to Jacob and saying, yeah, it's, it's okay to go to Egypt. Um, but we don't have God doing these grand things like you have with Exodus, like miracles and, and uh, parting the sea and drowning, like... Uh, the Egyptians. We don't have that yet. So I, what I want to say is when when Joseph says what you meant for evil, God meant for good, we don't really f- see God doing it, really. What we see is resourcefulness and ingenuity on the part of Joseph, which we queer people, oh boy, do we have to have resourcefulness and strategy and ingenuity to survive the hell that, that the rest of the world gives us. Mm-hmm. And I think that is what allows Joseph to be able to say on his own, um, despite the fact that there was very little divine intervention, uh, he ends up being able to make meaning from a divine perspective, saying what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But it doesn't mean that like God did it in any very simplistic sense. I don't know if you remember like, who is positioned and how and who is saying it and where are the power dynamics because it wasn't people in power over someone oppressed saying, we'll just deal with it, God is, God is doing this to you, right? That's not the power dynamics. What we have here is, after the power dynamics were reversed, and now Joseph is one, the one with the power, he is the one that takes upon it himself the initiative. Notice the brothers never make the excuse. The brothers never said, well, just deal with it, God did it, or God made good of it, or God... Out. Not even afterward did they dare to say something like that. It is for the person who was harmed to make that meaning out of it if they choose. And if they're in a position to do so freely because now the power has been reversed. I think that is essential for taking it in a healthy and responsible way when we say what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And Mm. I just want to say that this of course, positions us for the Exodus story because now uh, the children of Jacob and many generations thereafter are in Egypt, which to Mm -hmm. me is a symbol of the closet. And Exodus, of course, literally means coming out. So we will get the enslavement of the Israelites and then their eventual coming out narrative starting uh, next week. Sweet, sweet. That's a a good place to uh, wrap up there. Uh, Before we go ahead, and uh, do that officially. Just want to remind you guys that Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, is proud to offer two new podcast features. The first is Dialogue Heritage, which traces the history of the journal over the last 50 plus years to situate it in LDS history more generally. The second is Dialogue Book Report, which has discussion, reviews, and interviews about current LDS fiction, nonfiction, and memoirs, so you can stay up to date on the latest releases. Listen to these new shows and the Dialogue Lecture Series by subscribing on Apple Podcasts or at dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. That's dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network. Derek, where can folks find us? You can find us at beyondtheblockpodcast.com, also on Twitter and Instagram at btblds, and then also um, by find, searching us uh, on Facebook. Yes. I also wanted to uh, give a special thanks to uh, David Doyle for editing the transcripts. Uh, Also, Stephanie Martz and Angela Carter for helping out with the uh, social media stuff. And, of course, the team doing the incredible work of assembling episode outlines. Stephanie Peterson, Mary Gavilanes, Christine Lestarge, Jen Altman, and Beth Johnson. These outlines also include the uh, Faithful Feminist episodes from the same week, so you can have a one-stop shop for your Come Follow Me study helps. You can find a uh, link to the outlines that will be in the show notes as well as the drop-down menu on our website. 
Uh, same goes for the uh, transcripts as well. Also wanted to qu- send a quick thank you to everybody who's responded to our call for, uh, you know, looking for a podcast editor. Uh, it's a tremendous relief to see that there have been enough uh, people responding who also happen to be fans of the show that can help out. Uh, sorry, I have not been as diligent on social media this week in responding, but I will start getting back to people hopefully within the next week and uh, we can hopefully remove this load from us because mm-hmm. yeah, as much as I love what we do here, I hate listening to my voice and Derek's voice for the next, for, you know, a couple hours at a time to fix the podcast. Wow. Mostly I just realized voice. that you get to hear my awful jokes twice. At least twice. Oh no, poor and I can't James. edit them out and I can't edit them out because <laughs> they just don't make any sense when I cut them out. Just... I know. And the other thing is if you, um, did I would accuse you of being humor phobic? Oh my gosh, humor phobic! <laughs> mm-hmm. James, I'm gonna tell everyone you're humor phobic if you don't if you don't like my jokes. I am humor phobic. Goodness, you know what? I like to laugh. Derek, comedy is my favorite genre of you know movie, TV show. Shoot, it's just well, you don't like my sense of humor. It's the it's not even your sense of humor, Derek. It's like the context, and it's like I like to laugh when I'm expecting to hear a joke. You know, when I go looking for a joke, when someone cracks a joke in the like, I don't like not knowing what's going on. That's the major sin of your joke, Derek. You oh, just well, kind of sprinkle them in there. That's the best you sneak part. Sneak in there. It's it's the. <laughs> I, I just don't like being surprised. I'm somebody who hates surprise birthday parties and stuff like that. I don't like surprise. being surprised. That's what it is. That's honestly all it is. <laughs> so okay. anyway, on that note, thank you all for joining us. Yeah, thank we you meet so again much. Next week. Okay, bye everyone. <laughs>